Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Three, two, one. Carolyn Osorio is in the house, and we're actually doing it a little bit different. I'm making you laugh. Are you making like a weird noise now? Okay. Roll reversal. Brandon, I'm Carolyn Osorio with Brandon Morgan and hello, Criminal Mischief Nation. We are doing a little bit of a different take. I'm going to be interviewing Brandon um, today. Brandon, how are you? How are you? The great Brandon Morgan, who we don't (laughs) deserve. Every week he shows up and graces us with his presence. Well, that's nice to hear. It's really nice to hear. You know, be nice to hear it a little more often, quite frankly. Okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. I thought you were going to do the reverse psychology. Like you were going to actually be able to handle a compliment. No, no, no. uh, I can't can't do that. Okay. But thank you. I do want to say uh, thank you for allowing um, my show to to take over our show for a week. Thank you very much for that. That's very generous of you. So thank you. Um, you know what? It, it, it absolutely is my pleasure. And I was so happy to do it because you're amazing. And if I don't say it enough, it's absolutely true. And this, the devil within is your wheelhouse. Like it has, mm-hmm. especially season three, which we're going to get to, mm-hmm. but it has everything that you love. It has history. It has mm-hmm. music. It has psychological, like tortured souls. Mm-hmm. Um, what else does it have that you like? Uh, the, well, season one has a whole lot of New Jersey in it, so. Okay, no, I want to get there yeah. because in season three, this is the consummate Brandon, dirty, dingy, economically depressed love letter to New York City. It is. Right? It is. I mean, that's your love letter to your to your city, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it was a real... Uh, I've gotten some calls since, uh, since the show dropped and since the the press release came out, um, from some people back East, uh, that I've, that I've known either for a long time or known just kind of on the periphery, um, that, uh, were like, man, I, you know, my parents were part of this great exodus from New York in the seventies when everybody was leaving this, this, this kind of city on the decline like for the suburbs of Jersey and New York and, and Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, like a buddy of mine who's a few years older than me uh, grew up up the street. He said, I remember being eight years old and holding my mom's hand walking home in Brooklyn before we moved to New Jersey. And everybody was scared of, of the son of Sam, like everybody. He goes, the city was, was absolutely paralyzed. And so it's things like that, that, cause I don't remember it because I was super young and I wasn't hanging out in the city when I was three, you know, but, um, and no, neither were my parents. I mean, my dad would go in, he was a pilot. He'd go to fly out of the airports, but not like in Manhattan or in the outer boroughs or anything. Um, but so, you know, doing the research on it and, and the music of the time and the politics of the time and the economics of the time and everything was, uh, so just exciting for me to kind of dive into that. Um, well, I mean, it's really clear that you are a transplant to LA, to mm. Hollywood, but you are, your roots are absolutely East Coast. And I think that that's really 
what drew me to season one, I want to go there a little bit first before we get to season three, because that's really like when I was listening to that before I even knew you as a listener, like I was really like, you know, I love my Pacific Northwest. I'm mm-hmm. a, like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's so I, I totally get that, that love of a place, you know, the good and the bad. I mean, you don't necessarily love the bad, but you know what I mean? You look at it with, with eyes wide open, right? Yeah, um, of course. Talk about like with uh, season one um, with New Jersey and, and that's kind of how The Devil Within was born really was um, growing up in this town where this horrible murder occurred and how it affected you. And and I know as I was sitting here thinking about like saying that sentence to you, you'd be like, well, it's not about me because that's how you are. You know, you don't want to make it about you. And and I get that because that's such a hard thing to do when you're writing a story is putting yourself into it. Right. But I also think from conversations that we've had that you kind of had a catharsis, a cathartic experience after writing it. So why don't you talk a little bit about season one? And then we'll jump jump ahead to season three because you know that's kind of how we met. So I feel like it's worth talking about. Of course. So season one was a story that had been in my brain for thirty years. You know, it happened when I was when I was fourteen um, in my hometown, and I'll get to that in a second. But just as a piece of of content, as as and a vehicle for you know entertainment purposes. Um, it had been through uh, a ton of different iterations before it became a podcast, right? It was like three different versions of a feature film. It was two different versions of a, of a TV pilot. Been at various, you know, production companies or studios like in town for years. And, you know, it's exceedingly difficult to get anything made in Hollywood. Any filmed entertainment is really, really difficult to get made. Um, and so it was always backburnered in favor of something else that had a better shot. And I'd wound up selling a television show, a different show uh, to Sony. So I was on the Sony lot for a year. Um, and then, uh, and then that show fell apart. And so then back to the devil within, it was actually a, a TV show called Clinton road at first. And that was sent to a production company and they met with me and they said, let's do this as a, as a narrative podcast. And I hadn't listened to podcasts. I didn't really know what a podcast was. Like I knew of a couple, I'd heard of a few, um, but it wasn't by any means uh, experienced in podcasting. And so luckily uh, I was left completely unsupervised. They said, just tell a story that you want to do. Just tell a story. And so (laughs) I, I didn't realize that I was breaking a lot of rules in podcasting. By selling something as true crime, which it stopped being true crime about two thirds of the way through the season and became a speculative paranormal like ghost story. So uh, I did, it was like a, a genre mashup, um, and we just got lucky and 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 it landed at a great network and they marketed the hell out of it and and it just happened to catch and land in the zeitgeist at just the right time and wound up doing really well. Um, I was more surprised than anybody. And then, uh, but you could see in the comments, people are like, this isn't true crime. What the fuck is this? And then other people are like, wow, this is really cool. Interesting take on a story. And because of, there were some elements of the story 
that were never resolved and still aren't. Uh, and I'm not a journalist at all. Um, a storyteller. And so when there's something that's unsolved and that's kind of creepy, uh, that's just a big spinning attractive light. That's like, ah, make up something scary. Right. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's where I kind of went to, um, and writing the whole thing and, and producing the whole thing and, and talking to people that were there all those years ago, uh, was, was like a really great, big, long therapy session for me, um, where I could finally just get some, some salve on that wound of how could a kid my age who I could easily have been right. Like we were contemporaries. We were both these skinny white kids from Jersey, right. Trying to figure out who we were. Right. And he winds up murdering his mom and killing himself, you know, and I wind up being a break dancer, right? Like what, like where I wanted to investigate, like where those roads diverged, you know? Um, and it turns out that we were not at all alike, you know, and, and that was something that, that I figured out and that I faced and we had hardly anything in common, hardly anything, except that we lived in the same town, you know, a half mile away from each other. Um, like he's Catholic. I'm from a, you know, a non-religious family. He was an athlete on a wrestling team. I wasn't a traditional athlete. I was into more like action sports, like BMX and skateboarding. Um, you know, he was an altar boy. I wasn't, he, you know, he was, you know, like a nationally or ranked in the state wrestler. Like I, I so very, very different pressures, very different home lives. Um, and, and, uh, and different friends and different, circles that we ran in. So, um, and investigating all of that, like I said, was, was, was cathartic. It was like a therapy session and to finally get the story out, uh, was awesome for me. So. And I think, you know, you touched about many things that you said, like resonated with me, but, but I think that like you had to get the story out, like you kept pitching it, you kept writing it. And I mean, that's kind of the Hollywood version of you basically saying, Hey, there's something about this story that has to be told. I have to tell it and I'm going to try. And I think that that's, you know, huge because I feel like I had that story with the shadow girls too. Mm. And so when I heard your rendition of that, I was like, okay, great. You're working with a studio that gets this and I want to work with them too. You know what I mean? Yep. So I, I mean, I, I completely, I'm so glad that you got to the 360 of the whole thing, because a lot of times with these creative endeavors, it's like, you never, you know, you can pitch it, but if nobody's into what you're pitching, like it doesn't go anywhere, you know? So I'm glad that, go ahead. Yeah. Well, the, there was a really interesting moment when we, so the, so the podcast is successful. We start getting some incoming calls from production companies that want to do a documentary version of it. Okay. So we decide on a company, we attach some pieces of talent. And so we get the pitch together and now we start pitching it to networks. Okay. And we have all of these pitch meetings lined up and, um, and I always got the same question, like towards the end, like one of these network ex or studio execs would ask me and they would, they would say, Brandon, so do you believe this? Do you believe the story that you told? Because the story that I wound up telling was 
that, you know, he was, like I said, he was a Catholic kid. He was an altar boy um, that he was possessed by a demon that gave him this kind of supernatural strength that allowed him to do these terrible, terrible wounds to himself that no medical examiner has been able to explain how he could have done it to himself, but there was no evidence that there was anybody else there to do it. So that's the big mystery of the death of Tommy Sullivan. And so these execs would ask me, do you believe what you wrote? Do you believe that he was possessed? Um, and, I'm, and I would say, of course not. Of course I don't. And I always, I would come off as kind of a dick, right? And, but I didn't know how to answer it, right? And so, um, and it would bother me. And, and then like with the second to last pitch meeting, finally, like right in the moment, I realized, you know, what the right answer was, like what I really believed in my heart. And someone asked me that as I knew that they would, are you a believer? Do you believe what, you know, and I, and I went, no, I don't. Um, because I, th I believe that the truth is a lot scarier than anything that I wrote. The truth of what happened as a parent is much, much scarier than any, than any version of the ghost story. And they said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, because for Tommy to get to the point of where he was to do this, that means that every important adult in his life missed what must have been really fucking obvious signs that the kid was in crisis. His parents missed it. All of his teachers missed it. His, the clergy missed it. His fucking coaches missed it. Everybody missed it because they were clouded by the expectations that they had of this 14-year-old kid. You're a star wrestler. You're a straight-A student. You're an altar boy. You're the perfect son. You're a, a big brother. You're an example for your little brother. You're a leader in school, leader on the mat, leader in church, like all of this. And that they couldn't see that the kid was fucking suffering and he was about to fucking break. And he did. And so that scares the shit out of me, right? That everybody missed that and let the kid get to where it was. More than some fucking ghost story about being possessed, you know? So, um, and interestingly enough, that was the company that wound up buying the show uh, for to make it into to make it into a documentary. We wound up selling it, which is exciting. So, um, but but that was just another like another part of the journey, you know. <clears throat> I was just gonna say, would you have been able to get to that place had you not done, you know, been back to Jersey and like talked to all the people and had that huge catharsis? Like, and and I think that that's the thing about true crime that's so terrifying is that you know, there's, there's signs along the way and we don't, we don't notice them. You know, we don't, I mean, hence yeah. season three with, with the son of Sam, right? Like son who Sam. can look out for this, right? Wait, say that last part again. I missed it. I mean, who can look out for, I mean, how could you have known David Berkowitz was going to do what he did? Like the signs, right. like how can you, how could you, and, and I don't want to give too much away because obviously we're in episode one and you did a really good job of like not giving anything away. It was, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but go ahead. Well, it's, it's, it's similar, like same with season two, right? With season two with Michael Taylor, with this case in, in, in Yorkshire, in, in Northern England, um, this guy was, was suffering, right? He was suffering and he couldn't really tell anybody because it was it was stuff that 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 caused him a lot of shame, right? He had a back injury and he lost his job and he was like on welfare and he and he and he couldn't provide for his family. Okay, and they get invited to a church group and it was the first time in years where he was able to like 
right? Just relax and be himself. And he didn't feel any pressure and he could be honest about what was going on. And there was this intoxicating young woman who was the, the leader of this church group. And he completely fell in love with her completely. Like he was so vulnerable and this woman like understood him and the love went unrequited very like publicly in front of the group. She like shamed him and shunned him because she thought it would be good for him. And he fucking snaps. Okay. And instead of, Hey, let's get Michael some help, right? Let's maybe talk to a therapist. Let's get he and his wife into like a safe environment where they can talk through this stuff. But no way. You know what, you know what the church thought? He's possessed by a bunch of demons and we need to do a crazy fucking exorcism on him. And that make him made a, and that made him snap. And he went and got all murdery on people and uh and it went to trial and the church was absolved which in my opinion, they should not have been at all, right? They should have been taken to task for what they did and for the monster that they created in Michael Taylor. Um, and there are aspects of that case where like, there was like superhuman shit that he did, right? That, you know, like for the first like two days at the crime scene, cops were looking for the weapon that he used to completely tear apart his wife. And ultimately they realized there was no murder weapon because he did it with his fucking bare hands. Okay. Right. And these medical examiners like, do you know how hard that is? How difficult well, it is. Yeah. I think we've talked about this in previous episodes where we as humans want to have something make sense to us. Mm -hmm. It makes more sense to us that there would be some supernatural being the devil, you know, possessing someone, giving someone the strength to do it than to realize that, you know, in the case of Tommy Sullivan, you know, he was, he cracked from all the pressure and stress yeah. and, and, you know, had no lifeline. And this is what he felt compelled to do. Right. Yeah. And it's the same with the second season where it's like, you know, it's, it makes us feel better to think, yes, there's some super, I don't know why it makes us feel better. It doesn't make me feel better, but I know it makes some people feel better to know that, that that's how we can explain this away that um you know this is so rare that it can't right. really happen it's isolated um isolated yes it, right and there's an explanation it's it's not some not like your neighbor could could do this no you're safe like everything's cool don't worry about it you know and 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 going back to season 1 with with because I'm from a very catholic town and the church, the Archdiocese of Newark came in, okay? And they're like, all right, they had a huge town meeting. And they said- Huge uh, town meeting. Huh? Huge town meeting. Huge town meeting. Huge town meeting. It was- You in, literally looked like a preacher when you were doing it. Town meeting. It was supposed to just be in the cafeteria. Then the cafeteria built, spilled over into the high school uh, auditorium, which then spilled over like onto the basketball auditorium, right? So there, everybody like kind of showed up. And here's like the fucking cardinal or bishop. I don't know what the ranks are in the Catholic church. And he said, uh, basically, our bad. We missed it. It was a clear cut case of demonic possession. Nothing to see here. Police are closing the case. And everyone's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> and, and, and move on and beware of. Do you, do you remember that event? I mean, uh, do you remember? I Listen, anything having to do with, with the church, my family, just, we just didn't go. Okay. So mm -hmm. I talked to, so the first cop on the scene back then is now the mayor of the town. 
35, whatever years later. And so uh, he gave a ton of, of interviews to us and, and recounted like all of this stuff, like the police had to be trained um, in ways of like the, the satanic cults that were in the North Jersey woods back then. Right. And they had to get all these perimeters around the church for Tommy's funeral because they were told that armies of Satanists were going to come try to steal Tommy's body. Okay. And uh, they had to learn all of the, the lingo and what a grimoire was like a spell book and all of this, all of this stuff. So they were very, very serious about it. Um, and the parents were freaking out, freaking out because suddenly it became real that our kids could murder us in our homes. Okay. And, and so if the church is the answer to all the problems then the church better answer when shit goes wrong. And they're like, how did a kid like Tommy even get exposed to anything like Satanism? And they didn't like the answer because the answer was you learn about the antichrist from the guy preaching from the pulpit tells you about it. Okay. Tells you the power of the fallen angel and all of that shit. And so every now and then you're going to have a kid or a person, man, woman, whatever age, who's just on the edge and can be pushed over to align themselves with the darkness. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because it's attractive, because it's, it's mischievous, because it's, it's rebellious, because it's all of these things that maybe I can get what I want if I just go bad for a second. Like, let's see, because I'm not getting shit that I want by following the rules, you know? Mm -hmm. So let me break the rules a little bit and see if things go better for me. And, and like that, that's what happened to Tommy. And he fell in with a group of people and with people in the fucking woods and he, his friends changed and the, his, the music he was listening to changed and, and nobody, Nobody really knew it. There was one, we did one interview. There was a woman who wouldn't talk to me for the podcast, but she talked to uh, an investigator from the network who's doing the TV show. And she was Tommy's uh, middle school principal, a nun named Sister Philomena. And she's probably 80, uh, but young and spry and like will fight you. Like she, what is she, she's tough Jersey girl, you know, uh, cloistered nun for a while came out and now she's teaching kids. But so she was Tommy's principal and she told this, the craziest story. She said she was the last person at the school to talk to Tommy and she remembers it very, very clearly. She knew that something was going on, right? She could tell over the last uh, about a week, 10 days that something was going on with Tommy. She asks him to stay after one day in the, in the classroom. And she goes, I was looking at him and I could tell that I wasn't looking at Tommy. Okay. And I was trying to get his attention. I'm like, Tommy, look at me. Tommy, listen to me. She goes, and he blinked. And then he looked at me again. And that 14 year old kid was back. And I said, Tommy, remember that exorcism is a Catholic rite. Please remember that. She says, and he looked at me and he said, it's too late. I'm sorry. And he walked out and the next night he murdered his mom and killed himself. But how did, how did, why were they even talking about exorcism? Did she go, did she go there? Like what? Listen, that's, that's the question, right? Like I wanted to press this nun, but she's a nun. What am I going to do? I want to say, why the fuck did you let him even leave? Like, why did you, if you, if you're sitting there going, this kid's possessed, I'm reminding him that if he wants an exorcism done, the church will do it. 
And he says, it's too late. Like the most ominous, threatening thing that a kid could say. And you're like, all right, well, have a good weekend. See you Monday. No, you grab that kid and you fucking pin him down and you call the cops and you, you lock him up and you make him talk to people. And you, and what, you know what I, for, he's a kid, but no one, no one did any of that. And, and she told the story with, with more than a little regret in her voice, you know? Um, and so I didn't really want to force the issue. And, and I, I hear that. I hear the 14 year old little Brandon in there. Like, you know, like, I mean, it's like, it's hard to, to think of all the people that don't get that attention that they need. And then they go down this freaking dark, dark path. Yeah. And here he, he was basically saying it's too late. And, and it really wasn't, but it was because nobody did anything, you know? Watching the um, watching the video, the interview with Sister Philomena, you th you you get you get the idea that she doesn't believe it was Tommy who said it's too late. You of think she does? Of I mean, of course. That, how was she, she going to sleep at night if 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 you get the feeling that she thinks that it was it was Lucifer talking to her? Saying, yes. Yeah. Which, yes. Listen, listen. <laughs> it was. I was just, don't even go here because I was going to say, like, how is how the irony of life, right? Yeah. That you are you and you're doing season after season after season in this hellscape. Yeah, I know. That is, I mean, you get it, right? I, I mean, totally get on. it. I totally get come it. On. I totally like, get you're, it. You're glutton for punishment. Well, listen, like, you some... should have been Catholic. Sometimes, you know, stories need a skeptic asshole and I could be that person. And sometimes they just need an advocate to tell the story. And I can also be that person, you know, without, without yeah. getting all judgy, you know, because uh, listen, right or wrong, you know, that, that classic statement, I never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And, and because I'm not a journalist, I'm not ethically bound by any standards like you are or anything like, I'm just, I'm a storyteller, you know, like if something seems interesting, I don't ever try to present things as facts unless they are. I can I say it's been speculated that this, or it's been talked about that this, or this person believes that this is what it is, right? Because I'm telling a story. If people want news and facts stuff, they're not going to come to my podcast called The Devil Within. You know what I mean? Like, you know what you're getting when you come here, right? There's, you know, I, I love taking these historical off ramps, you know, and because it's stuff that I find interesting. And maybe if I find it interesting, I'm a normal average guy. Maybe other people find it interesting, right? That's my philosophy in, in podcasting. Um, and so I happen to find very interesting the history of the woods of North Jersey, because that's where I grew up, right? So there's a bunch of off ramps in the show about that. You know, in, um, in season two, there's a, a ton of stuff about, you know, the cinema of the early 1970s with the exorcist and stuff that influenced society when it comes to exorcisms. I found that super interesting. Okay. So that's in season two, season three. Holy shit. It's all about New York. Right. And the gosh, the, these great Yankee teams in the seventies. Okay, okay, okay. Like, like what do we have here? We have, I could hop a flight to Miami beach or Hollywood. I'm taking a Greyhound on Hudson river. <laughs> on a Hudson river, river line. line, I'm in New York state of mind. I mean, it's, it's actually a, it's a, kind of a beautiful thing. Like I, I love your passion for New York. I love yeah. your passion for New Jersey. And, yeah. and I think that, um, 
you know, those are the best kinds of storytellers is when you have some skin in the game. I don't know about you, but I sort of cringe when people are on some kind of health kick and they just wear it on their sleeve. I'm already motivated to work out and eat healthy, but I'm also a busy mom and I like to do what I like to do when I like to do it. So I'm always a little bit skeptical at the latest trend, but on the flip side, I'm also very curious and I'm also looking for things to incorporate into my lifestyle that make me feel good, are worth my time, and most important, are sustainable, which for me could mean on any given day, I may be looking for quick and easy, or if I have more time, arduous and challenging and everything in between. Which is all to say when it comes to quick and easy with massive positive health benefits, I am loving Dose for Your Liver. Dose for Your Liver is an organic wellness shot that supports your liver in one delicious drink. Down the hatch and you've done a solid for your liver, which is no small thing. Your liver is literally your body's filter. It flushes out unwanted elements and it breaks down the essential nutrients that you want and shares the good stuff with the rest of your body. Did you know that liver health can actually impact everything from your brain to your skin, gut health, digestion, and everything in between? If you want to give Dose a shot and invest in your health, Dose is offering Criminal Mischief listeners 15% off your first order, plus an additional 15% off if you subscribe for a monthly delivery. That's 30% off your first order. Go to dosedaily.co slash mischief, that's M-I-S-C-H-I-E-F, and use code mischief. That's dosedaily.co slash mischief, and use code mischief. I love titles, okay? I think titles of things are very important, okay? So mm-hmm. in season one, the title of every episode is a specific poem, especially the great New England poets, because my dad's from New England, okay? So a lot of Robert Frost and a lot of Longfellow and a lot of like these great poets. And so um, I was just kind of surrounded and inundated um, with these kind of pastoral, like uh, like Emerson and Thoreau and these these great voices of like of the woods, you know, like like I said, like Robert Frost. And so um so each episode in season one is the title of a poem. Uh season two, it's in England, right? And so everything are not Shakespeare plays, but but uh like well-known lines from Shakespeare. And each one deals directly with the content of the episode. Okay. And so for season three, like what's more New York than Billy Joel? So every episode is a Billy Joel song and every episode Mm -hmm. starts with, with, you know, lyrics from that song that relate directly to the content that you're about to hear. So um, I think titles are very important. Other people don't, and that's cool. Um, For me, maybe they're Easter eggs. Maybe no one gives a shit. I don't know. But for me, it, it serves as kind of like a a really uh, important jumping off point when I'm writing. Right. So if I ever like get blocked or I don't know where to go next, I can I can retreat back to that initial kind of opening salvo. I'm like, all right, this is what this episode is about based on the title. So mm-hmm. spoiler alert. So, episode two is called Angry Young Man. Okay. And that's a that's a Billy Joel song. Of course. Every episode is a Billy Joel song. Think of the great mm-hmm. Billy Joel songs and you can maybe figure out, you know, where where the season's going. Okay. Well, you know, your rendition of it at the beginning of episode one, I was like, is this the killer? <laughs> is this, was this, was this his diatribe? No. I was like, no, no, 
No. Yeah. So I had to, I had to go back and listen to New York state of mind. So, yeah. um, let's get to season three. Yeah. Here we are. Um, yeah. So, so what was your, so episode one came out last week. We're putting it in our feed. You're having people call you and like, what does that feel like for you to have like people reach out and, and say, oh my gosh, your what you've written or your podcast is making me think about New York and making me think about this or that. Like, I love that. Yeah. I, lo- I love it too. It's, it's tricky, you know, that you, it's, it's hard to not feel great about it, but then it's, it's, then it becomes easy if someone calls and says you suck. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean, like you try not to, but you know, it's again, to go back to, you know, Kipling, uh, meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, right? Because it's just opinions. It's just someone's opinion. But yes, it feels great. Can we just, can we just do the good stuff for once? Sure. Not have to, I mean, doesn't that feel great? Because I know. Of course it feels great. If we're, but then then I'm in the car picking up my 11-year-old daughter from school and she goes on Apple Podcasts and all she does the whole drive home is read me one-star reviews, right? Because she likes to break my balls, okay? So- and we laugh and oh it's great. <laughs> and it's, so... and it's, it's funny. You and... got you got the daughter that you deserve. That's all I can say. Oh, you're <laughs> absolutely you right. You're absolutely your right. Progeny. She is your progeny. So go girl. Um, but I mean, you're, you're enjoying, you're enjoying it though. Cause I know that you really were getting into it when you were putting it together. And that's always like, I can tell that you just loved you know, it, it comes through in the episode, the writing, the the love of it. And um, I'm really looking forward to uh, tomorrow when uh, episode two drops. Um, I don't know if you want to talk too much about what we can expect, but how did this guy get the guy to buy a, a gun for him? I'm just like, yeah. you know, the way, the way he kind of, he seems a little bit like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, we don't really know because, uh, Mr. Parker, the guy who completed the straw purchase at the pawn shop in Dallas, um, never really made a statement to the press afterwards. He kind of went into hiding. Um, I'm sure he was, was punished in some way, um, but it was different back in the, back in the seventies. You know, this was, it wasn't the, the, the gun crazy culture that we're in right now, right? The, it was, it was before that early nineties, um, Supreme Court decision that really expanded uh, Second Amendment rights with a new interpretation of the text. And so it was, it was, there were far, many, many, far fewer guns out on the streets back then. Right? Like you listen to old news reports from the time and they were like, there were 29,044 caliber revolvers in the U.S. at the time. There's probably 29 million of them today. And no lie. Okay. And so it was numbers that they couldn't even fathom back then being on the streets. So, so there was that. Um, And my answer to your question would be they were army buddies. You know, Berkowitz didn't have a lot of friends. The friends that he had, he made in the army doing LSD either in Korea or back in uh, Fort Knox where he was, where he was stationed. And you know, those, Bonds that you make in the military are are very lasting, and uh, I'm sure that he, you know, lied to him and tricked him. I'm sure he, he didn't go down there to visit his friend. He went down there to get his friend to buy him a gun, 
that, that was my next question. Did, was that trip just all a ruse? All a ruse. It was all a ruse. You know, and, and try to put yourself in the mind of this. Because, listen, Berkowitz was no dummy, okay? He was, he was intelligent. Um, that was never in question. His emotional stability was always in question, but his intelligence never was. Um, and so he, you can, you can picture it, right? They're like at some barbecue joint in Texas and he's, you know, and he was waiting just for the right time. He goes, you know what, man, on my way down here, you know, I was at a truck stop or whatever. And there was, you know, these bad guys or a gang or <clears throat> who knows. He goes, I'd really like some, I'd like to protect myself on the way home, but I don't have a Texas ID. Could you help me get a gun? And, you know, and Parker's probably like, you know what? You're right, man. There's a lot of bad shit out there. I want you to be safe. Of course. Because he knew him to be trained in firearms. He knew him to be responsible with firearms. They had the same military training. So it probably wasn't that big of a deal. And David probably just played it cool. I doubt he said, I need a gun because I, I I need to go kill people. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? They, well, how they, old was he at this time? How old was 20, he? And how- 23, 24, 23 when he got the gun. Yeah. He was just at, so he went into the military after high school and he had just gotten out. No, he'd gotten in, uh, he only did three years in at 17, out at 20, and then was just kind of bouncing around the city for a couple of years. You know, he worked as a security guard. He worked, he drove a cab for a while. You know, his dad had moved down to Florida, so he was on his own. Um, and, and just slowly getting worse and worse with, uh, these kind of earth-shattering revelations about his past that contributed to what psychologists would later call the primary crisis of his life, um, which we get into very deeply in, in further episodes, um, where by the end, I think we can paint a really, really like crystal clear picture of his motivations, his reasoning behind it, irrespective of any kind of demonic possession or paranormal stuff, which which dovetails really nicely, but it also exists the same pathology and the same um, catalyst for his behavior exists without that. So um, because, you know, you never know who to believe, right? I interviewed an FBI agent who uh, talked about, um, I forget the actual terms, but it's something bias and then something else bias. One is like the, we'll call it the therapy bias, right? Where the therapist believes everything that they're told. Okay. And then you have the law enforcement bias where they assume that everything they hear is a fucking lie. Okay. So with, when, in those two, where the two shall meet. excuse me, where the two shall meet, what, what's yeah, real? the same guy. And there's, and, the, and both of those entities are so important in, hmm. in the career prosecution of a criminal okay like who are you going to believe who is the public supposed to believe who's the judge who's the jury supposed to believe right because they're completely opposing theologies not theology sorry completely opposing um ideologies one therapist is like i believe everything that he told me so here's what's wrong with him and the cops are like he was fucking lying from the beginning and so we don't know what's going on so it's it's tough it makes for a very um really interesting kind of dichotomy between um, these, these really, like I said, these really important entities. And so, so you don't know, all we know is how is our interpretation of the facts of David Berkowitz's life. Okay. And what he eventually, the crimes that he eventually committed. That's what we know. Mm -hmm. We can interpret it. 
um, you know, the, all the interviews he's given in the last 10 years is just about how much he loves Jesus and he's not the son of Sam anymore. He's the son of hope. Okay. And that's all. And listen to his credit, his, his, his prison ministry helps a ton of dudes out in there and, and good for him. If he, if he gives guys with very bleak futures, some, a little bit of peace. Um, but so we don't really, we're only getting farther from, from the truth, I think. So. How old is he now? Is he like in his 70s? 72, 73, somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah. What's the biggest takeaway? I know you can't talk much about the season because you don't want to give it away, but like what what have you learned from season three? Season three, what I learned is uh, you participated with with that. I, I wound up at the end, I completely reworked the first episode because I, I changed kind of the main kind of thesis of, of, of the story, which is, you know, the triumvirate, right? The, the person, the environment and, and the time. Okay. Like if you, if you switched any one of those three kind of levers, you wouldn't have gotten David Berkowitz. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like if it was David Berkowitz, New York city, but like in the nineties, right? Like that wasn't a conducive environment for this reign of terror. Okay. If it was a different guy in New York city in the 1970s, you know, it wouldn't have happened. Right. If it was a different city in the 19th, right. So it was oftentimes it's those three things coming together where you'll get like a Napoleon Bonaparte, right. Or you'll get a Jeffrey Dahmer or you'll get a Leonardo da Vinci. Okay. Or a David Berkowitz, you know? Um, So that was the big takeaway there. And there was, and there was a little sadness in that because, you know, it didn't have to happen is the bottom line, yeah. you know? I love that. And I think that that's one of the things that I love about your, your work and in episode or season one is, is the, there's hope there. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's not just, you know, when you go into the history and you describe something, you know, sometimes when you, when you have these true crime stories and it's like, you can't even hear them because they're just so depressing. If, if it weren't for this or that, you know, this wouldn't have happened and these innocent people wouldn't have been killed. And so I think that in talking about, um, a container that feels right, where it's not necessarily a religious container, but for someone like me, where it's like, you know, there's people who do great things who have like the most horrible things happen to them and then choose to, you know, write about it. Like you juxtapose the the hip hop and the punk rock during that mm-hmm. time period and people just doing amazing things with their, you know, hopelessness and anger and rage and, and all of that. And, and I think that, you know, there is those shining examples and it's not just David Berkowitz's, you know? Right. Right. And the other big takeaway was, uh, that police work is really, really difficult. It's really hard. And, mm-hmm. um, especially in the seventies. <laughs> yeah. But still like it, it's, it's, this really shined a light because I, I was speaking to a different FBI guy um, who laid it out. He goes, listen, basically most of the time murder cases are pretty easy to solve because the the murderer is almost always in some way associated with the victim. Okay. So you don't have to look very far. It's just kind of putting the pieces together and figuring out which person that they've been associated with did it. But when you have a truly random 
series of murders where there's no connection between the victims. There's no connecting connective tissue at all. Different boroughs, different precincts, different ages, different whatever. The cops are just flying blind, hoping for one simple thing is that the guy fucks up, right? That a very organized killer who's got a very strict set of rules. And you'll learn that about Berkowitz in the series. He was very organized and stuck to an extraordinarily strict set of guidelines before he pulled the trigger. Okay. And the police were powerless. They were absolutely powerless. Okay. They had patrols everywhere. They reached out to the mafia to help. They were, they were talking to fucking psychics. They were like everybody that you could think of just so they could show the public. We're trying, we're trying, but there's nothing that anybody can do. So Mm -hmm. it really uh, made me appreciate more than I already did the work of law enforcement. Um, And then the last thing was the the really consistent kind of um, the same old story, right? Uh, A sad, lonely, isolated person who doesn't get the help that they need. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, you, you, you slip through the cracks, you know? And somebody in his life, in this case, I think it should have been his father, had to have known had to have known the crushing news <clears throat> time and time again, three or four times in Berkowitz's life, he got news that, you know, all of the rest of us, if we're lucky, we might get it once in our life, right? Like we might have one or two like really bad crushing days, you know, David had a bunch of them, a bunch of them. And you didn't have anybody to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. So, so he wasn't a part. So he wasn't being manipulated by a, you know, religious organization. This was all in his own head. There are so I mean, many. There are so many possibilities out there. There are so many possibilities I, out there that, again, that we get into, and, the, and I don't know if any of them are true. I don't know if all of them are true. Was he manipulated mm-hmm. by somebody? Because he seems ripe by everything you're describing. He seems yeah, but ripe it's, it's, for it's a... Thing. Here's what it's like. Here's what it's like. Mm-hmm. It's like if you... Gosh, I can't even come up with a good analogy for this. But you know what I mean. It's it's where if you... A person is brought into a group. Okay. <laughs> All right. For example, like these... Um, I don't know. All right. Like, like these medieval uh, fight rec- or civil war recreationists, right? You know, these mm-hmm. people, they put the uniforms on, they get this, the period correct muskets and they recreate like the battle of Gettysburg. Okay. You could have a hundred of these guys and they're like weekend warriors and they're great. And they're like, Oh, Hey, here's a, Hey John, come on and join us. This will be fun. But John is a fucking lunatic and no one knows it. And John is taking it way too seriously, right? Where everybody else leaves it there because they're weekend warriors and they go back to their jobs. But John internalizes it and thinks that he could win the civil war. Okay. So Berkowitz was involved with a group of weekend warrior type of people involved in a specific activity that didn't really take it seriously, but he did Mm -hmm. take it seriously. 
Okay. And no one else knew that he was taking it seriously because no one else, even David was aware of the pathology. You know, uh, uh, I spoke with a serial killer specialist who, who I called him, uh, described him as a nest of pathologies. Okay. That he kept hitting. Oh my God. That's like the perfect description. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was a nest of pathologies. Nest. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And he just like laid in. <laughs> right to the point where no one knew, right? No one knew. It was like, oh, here's this, here's this other kid, David from the Bronx. He lives in Yonkers now. Let's invite him. Oh, okay. He lives down the street. Yeah, cool. Let's hang out. Here's what we're doing. He's like, oh, this is different. Okay. This is cool. Because he was constantly looking for a tribe, David. He was looking to belong because of how he grew up, right? And what all of these unmet needs that he had, he was searching, right? Didn't find it in the army. In the army, he first didn't find it in Judaism. Okay. Goes to the army, doesn't find it in the army. He, he converts, becomes a Baptist, doesn't find it there. Okay. And and then he goes and he tries to reconnect with people from his past. That doesn't work out, you know. And then he goes to and he's friends with these new with these new brothers that he meets in Yonkers and hangs out with them. Maybe this is it. You know, and all of these different things that he tried, he was 100% committed. Like, he's like, this is who I am now. Now it's going to work and now I'll be happy and now I'll be fulfilled. And that big gaping hole in my soul will be filled. And it never was, never was. And, and he was just wound up alone in this little apartment in Yonkers, working in the post office by day and doing other shit at night. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, he was only 23 years old. How yeah. how do you think his dad could have helped him? Like, now you've got me curious. Now you've, like, set it up. Like, how could his dad have, you know, he's only 23. Or you could you say know? he was already 23, right? Like, like, the train had already kind of left the station at that point. But the things that David went through, that his father knew about and was one of the prime movers in making David aware of the truth of his life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he just left, he moved. Right. He like mm-hmm. completely destroys David's life with information that maybe someone more well-adjusted would be able to internalize and figure it out. Not David. And his dad's like, and um getting remarried and moving to Florida. You're not invited. See you later. Good luck. And so here's David by himself, left to deal. How do you just unravel all of these enormous emotions um that redefine your life and, and who you are, you know? And if that doesn't comport with who you think you are, who you want to be, specifically if you've really gone all in, <clears throat> excuse me, on this evangelical Christianity, um, that, that, that doesn't jive with this new information that you learned about yourself. Okay. And then all of that comes, becomes focused into something really destructive and the, the, the finest point of his focus became vengeance. He personified, he was a vehicle for vengeance. That's all that he became. And the interesting thing is what he was trying to avenge. And that is revealed in episode five. (laughs) Well, I'm just like so excited to listen to episode two. Tell everybody where they can, where they can listen. They've heard it on Criminal Mischief with Carolyn Brandon, but 
now available in its own feed and do the honors, Brandon. Yes, it is. It's called The Devil Within. It is on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen, you know, Spotify, any of the other platforms. Um, And um, seasons one and two are available to binge at your listening pleasure. And then um, Mm -hmm. the big news is that with our new network home at Cloud 10, um, the show after the season, it's a six episode season, after the season concludes, um, we're going to keep the train going uh, with weekly um, weekly episodes, you know, you know, just contained weekly stories. Um, and then uh, once or twice a year, we'll do another limited series. Um, so hopefully we're just going to continue to build a relationship with the audience and, um, and keep it going. Cause I really love, I really love doing it. And through circumstances that were beyond my control for the last 13 months, um, uh, I wasn't able to do anything with the feed, which is, one of the reasons why the season is called uh, a season in hell because it mirrors the last year of my life as well. <laughs> I'm just emerging. From, I'm emerging from my own personal season in hell. So, uh, <laughs> and that's the title of a, a great book by a French poet named Arthur Rimbaud. So, I mean, you should check that out as well. Um, okay. Title, title, man. Titles. It's all about titles. Yeah. Title, man. Titles are important. So, yeah. Well, I'm very happy that you're out of your season from hell. I couldn't be happier for you with this latest um, Thank you. pursuit. Thank you for sharing it with us. And um, I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for letting uh, letting the devil within take over the criminal mischief feed this week. That's uh, very generous. So it's thank you. Very worthy. Very worthy. So anything, do you have anything else that you'd like to say, Brandon Morgan? I'm trying to do your job of like closing us out. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry. Do respect. You know, you're doing a shitty job of it, Carolyn. Okay. (laughs) I am. I I know I am. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, nothing, nothing that I'd like to add. Bring me back to criminal mischief and all of my um, failings. Thank you. I I can always uh, count on you for that. Thank you everybody for, uh, for listening. And I hope that you'll, uh, that you'll find um, the devil within and follow the show. And, uh, and feel free to uh, leave me a terrible review because my daughter will make sure I hear it in the car on the way home from school. Garbage. Who could listen to this trash? This writer sucks. Yeah, all that. I love it. And she Are you says kidding it, me? She says it with such passion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's great. That would that would that would like melt me. I mean, I I just I'd be like a puddle in the car. No, but it's funny. It's like can't believe I listened to the whole season twice and it didn't get better. This guy sucks. I'm like, why are you listening to it twice? Come on, man, give me a break. But but at least they're listening. You know, it's fine. I know, but why can't you share the good ones? That's what I'm saying. I wanted to hear the good stuff, Brandon. I wanted to hear the nah, good stuff. Did you, you could read. Did about you get it. any good ones? You could read. No, because I don't want to. I don't want to hear bad reviews about you. I don't. I want to hear the <laughs> good ones. That's what. They're funny. The devil okay. within, more like the devil without, meaning the writers without brains. You know that. You don't, you, want, you don't want to hear that. That's funny. That's good writing. Come on, that's funny. Okay. Well, I okay. I I'm so happy for you that you're happy with yeah. bad reviews. If I could give this negative five stars, I would. You know all that shit. Okay. But they're listening, but according they're listening. to Brandon. But they're listening. Um, and um, 
And episode two drops uh, the 13th. What's that? Is that tomorrow? No, Wednesday. Wait, you said tomorrow. We're Wednesday drops. We're Wednesday drops. Oh, that's right. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Well, then Wednesday the 13th, episode two. So check it out. You got plenty of time. And then we're weekly until uh, until the end of January. I'm sorry. Limited till the end of January and then weekly episodes uh, from then on out. So we hope you um, we hope you find the show and uh, and come and join us. So, Carolyn, thank you again for this. This was a real treat. Mm-hmm. Until next time. Until next time. Mischief. Stay safe out there, Criminal Mischief Nation. Bye. Bye. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.